Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Thank you for joining us. It is great to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, welcome as well. Uh, We hope you are still in your PJs, under a blanket, with some good coffee, uh, joining in from home. This is our last week in our series, Songs for Sojourners. If you have a Bible or your phone, you can go to Psalm uh, 130. And so that's where we're going to be camped out for a little bit uh, today. I've really enjoyed this series. I hope you have too. Uh, the picture you remember of this series is this is like a small hymn book. These psalms we've studied inside the bigger book of psalms. Specifically, these are songs that travelers, pilgrims, sojourners would sing together on their way to Jerusalem to gather all of God's people together to make much of God for worship. And so we've seen along the way, I hope you have, uh, that they have a lot to say uh, to us. Uh, That we're also likewise people on a journey. That we are as followers of Jesus pressing in, trying to know God more and more. And there are parts of that journey that are full of joy. Uh, Some are full of sorrow. In all things we're learning how to be then a people of repentance and humility of endurance and perseverance, a people who go about our work with meaning uh, and also a people of great joy. And so as we finish up today, I just want to remind you, that's what we've been talking about, this long journey of consistent obedience to God that results in something unbelievable if we're patient with the process. Today, our, the psalmist is going to address something that affects all of us, but something that we all respond to in different ways, and that's this idea of suffering. Suffering is universal, and yet often in the middle of suffering, we as individuals feel like we are all alone in it, that no one's walked through what we've walked through. No one's experienced anything like this before. I, I remember the first time I experienced suffering Maybe some of you 80s kids would remember this, but it's when He-Man got canceled. That was the worst. Uh, the cartoon He-Man, he was my favorite. I had the, the Castle Skull that would slime people. Uh, that was my prized possession. And uh, I had all the figurines. And when He-Man got canceled, the cartoon went off the air. I was heartbroken. Then when I was 18, a senior in high school, my good friend Kenny was diagnosed with leukemia. And that was probably the first time in my life where I experienced a suffering that was disorienting, that caused me to ask questions, why? To wrestle with meaning behind suffering, to experience sadness and sorrow for sure, but also what was associated with that time in my life was a sense of injustice. I remember my friend Greg picked me up one night. Uh, We were freshmen at the University of Georgia and we drove through the night to get to Emory. And I remember us just sitting in my friend Kenny's hospital room at Emory, uh, watching him slowly passing away. And inside of me just going, this is wrong. There's often that with suffering, a feeling that an injustice has been done to us. That this is not the way that things are supposed to be. Probably the time of suffering in my life that was the most personal, I was 24. 
and walked through something that was so disorienting. I really thought the entire direction of my life was going to change in the events of just a few days. That was the first time I remember feeling just alone. Like I couldn't even talk to anybody about what I was experiencing. And so I left our apartment, walked out into the parking lot, locked myself in my Toyota Tacoma, and I just called my dad and lost it on the phone. Like I couldn't even describe the emotion of what I was feeling. I was just so overwhelmed. I was fearful about the outlook of the future. I didn't know what else to do. This psalm deals with that sort of suffering, that sort of time in our life. So as we dive in, let's just pause for a second and you pray with me so we can all together set our hearts to the right attitude before we turn to God's word. So let's pray. You pray this as I lead us in prayer. Father, we know your word is for our good. I know, God, it can be a balm healing to my soul. Please speak to me your truth. Amen. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The first question we have to ask is, what is suffering? The psalmist describes it in verse 1 as the depths, or the message says, the bottom has fallen out of my life. It's that time where, yes, we are experiencing some sort of pain, but it feels incredibly hopeless. What I had been trusting in, what had been the foundations of my life are now missing, and I feel like I am at the bottom of the bottom. Often, suffering in our lives has a variety of causes. Sometimes suffering is because of our own decision-making that we have times in our life where we make terrible and destructive decisions and we eventually reap the results of that and it is painful. The guy who decides just to not show up at work gets fired because he didn't show up at work. But that still doesn't take away the sting of knowing you have a family to provide for and you are running out of money. Suffering, even suffering that's a result of our own decision-making is hard, it is painful. Sometimes our suffering is the result of other people's decisions, what other people did. Other people have wronged us. We've been the object of abuse or neglect or unfaithfulness. It's not our fault, but we sometimes pay a price for what other people decide to do. Sometimes suffering just feels like happenstance, just life happens. 
You didn't do anything to get the cancer diagnosis. It wasn't your fault that the other person left. Life just happened. And because life happened around us, we pay some sort of price. It's painful. We suffer. Suffering is pain for sure, but it's really more than that, isn't it? It becomes for us this feeling that we're under attack. It's real, it's personal. It pushes against, back against our very existence. The things that give us meaning in life feel like they've been robbed from us. What makes life good is not making life good anymore. It's intensely personal. How do we respond? Well, typically we do one of two things. The first thing we do is we try to hide our suffering, especially from other people, and unfortunately in the church, often from other people in the church. There seems to be, especially in Western culture, a shame associated with suffering. We think that our entire lives are built around avoiding it, and if we're good at living, then we will avoid its suffering. And so when we experience it, whether it's our fault or not, we feel as though we have to hide it that something's wrong with us, that our friends who have it all together are going to look down at us because we're going through a time of difficulty. Or maybe even worse, that God has abandoned us. But we don't have to hide our suffering. We don't have to be embarrassed by it. The psalmist doesn't. He writes a poem about it. He prays to God. He acknowledges before God that he is at a low point. He is at the depths. The bottom has fallen out of his life. And let's not forget the context of these psalms. Not only is the psalmist not hiding in shame his suffering, but remember, these are corporate worship songs. All of God's people together are singing about suffering here as a community of faith willing to acknowledge there are depths and I have been there. There are depths and I am currently there. And so the example we have in the psalm is not one of hiding or of shame, but of honesty and openness. The second thing that we try to do is we try to solve it, try to figure it out. As if our suffering is a 1,000 piece puzzle the spread out on the coffee table, and we've got to put all of the pieces together. Or worse, that guy. You know that guy? I use the word guy, masculine, on purpose because women don't tend to do this. But that dude does. That sees your suffering as an opportunity for his own philosophical system. You know that guy. Let me explain to you what's really going on. This is the way God is going to use your suffering to maximize his glory. You know what happens with that guy? I experience rage usually. (laughs) I think that's very closely associated to the phrase, a punchable face, right? Like, I am going to punch you in the face. That while... Treating suffering as a philosophical discipline might be fun in certain areas or might be enlightening or have their place in the middle of it. It is the last thing that we want. But that's not what the psalmist does. Do you notice that? He doesn't in verse 1 go, God, here's what I think this means. 
or here's what I think you're doing. He just says, God, I need you to hear me. I am crying out for mercy. Will you hear me? When I thought the wheels were coming off when I was 24, called my dad, lost it on the phone. I don't lose it. Uh, if anyone knows me, uh, I have uh, the um, I have like some sort of emotional imbalance, perhaps. I don't know. Like I don't get sad. I don't cry very often. There's only a handful of times uh, that I just get really emotional. And so when I completely lost it on the phone, I mean, just out of control on the phone with my dad, he didn't know what to do. He was just so out of character for me. So here's what he did. He showed up. They were in Warner Robins. Krista and I were living in Raleigh. He had a plane that morning and was there by two o'clock. My parents showed up. They just listened and heard and sat with us and were present. That's what's meaningful, isn't it? Not the solution, not the chart of possibilities, but presence. And this is where the psalm is pointing us. The bottom has a bottom, and God's there, present, able to hear. And so our response to suffering is hope. Now, hope for a Christian isn't wishing, isn't dreaming. Hope for a Christian is believing this very thing, that God is, at pres is present and is at work. Hope for a follower of Jesus is a steadiness that comes from knowing God is present even at the bottom of the bottom. That while it might seem like my foundation has been ripped out from underneath me, there is a more sure foundation that God is there. When it seems like I might be stretched to my limits, that God is present at all of those boundaries, that God seeks us out in times of hurt and pain. So the psalmist uses an illustration. Verse 4, he talks about a watchman waiting for the morning. He says, I'm going to hope in God's word, his promises, his truth, just like a watchman waits for the sun to come up. I am going to be watching and waiting. Now, a watchman, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is someone who is employed just to watch. A watchman is not productive to the business. A watchman does not protect the city. A watchman just watches for possible things to go wrong. A watchman's best day at work is when nothing happens. And the only thing over the entire night shift that is in any way remarkable is the dawn. The sun came up. And here is what the psalmist is saying hope looks like for us. That we embrace this identity of a watchman and with the same certainty that we believe the sun is going to rise in the morning, we walk with that same certainty God is going to show up. God is going to act. God is going to be present. I love Eugene Peterson says, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. 
It means going about our assigned task, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulation of scurrying and worrying. Here's what he says hope is in your life and my life. We just get back on the journey. We just keep pressing on. We keep doing what we know God has called us to do, even in the middle of our pain, because we know it's not my job to provide the meaning. It's not my job to provide the conclusions. God does that. God is in charge of that. We don't put on, as Eugene Peterson says, a bogus spirituality. My hope and prayer for our church is we do not become a church of bogus spirituality where the depth of us is so shallow that all we have to offer each other is pithy sayings and precious moments figurines. We don't have to gloss over anything. That's not what the psalmist does here. I am at the depths, the bottom of the bottom. And likewise, we don't have to panic. And we don't turn into a p- people trying to manipulate God with our good behavior. God, if you could get me out of this, I will do. God, if you'll change this, I will. That's not hope. Instead, we go with certainty. God, I know that you know all things. You know the meaning, you know the conclusions, even when I don't. And you are present here. You might be asking the question, but how do I know that? How do I know that God is at the bottom? How do I know when I hit that place, he will still be present here? Do you notice verse three? We skipped over it. We're gonna go back to it. Verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It'd be tempting to think that this psalm is only about a suffering associated with our own sin. That suffering is a result of sin. And so the way that we find a way out of our suffering is we finally identify the way that we have sinned against God and we ask for forgiveness. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Mainly because Jesus would disagree with that line of thinking. When Jesus is asked who sinned that resulted in an infirmity for a person, Jesus says, fellas, that's not the way this works. Suffering is not always a direct result of sin. We experience it in a variety of ways. Your own sin is not to blame for all human suffering. Instead, what the psalmist is doing here is he is pointing us to the very character of God. We can hope in him in times of suffering. Why? Because here's the argument. He says, because we know nobody can stand before God. No one's worthy of God's favor or his blessing that our sin has separated us from God in a way that we don't deserve any grace or mercy or compassion from him whatsoever. We can't stand, we have no standing before him. Yet what we find even in the middle of that is we can come to him. 
that God is gracious and compassionate, that he does hear us when we pray, when we cry out to him. And it's not because we are morally good people or it's not because we did something to deserve it. It's because God is exceedingly gracious. The only hope that you and I have when we call out to God to forgive us is in the fact that God is forgiving. That God is a God who loves enough, is compassionate enough, is merciful enough, and is attentive enough to forgive us. That the depths of our sin is much deeper than the depths we are experiencing right now in this moment. And in that depth, God found you there. In that depth, God was present there. He didn't abandon you there. That in the middle of our sinfulness, we found him to be faithful and merciful and forgiving. And we will find that same dedication to us from God, no matter what we are walking through. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus that God has already demonstrated his own love for us and this, that while we were yet sinners, in the depth of our sin, Christ died for us. We have even more of the story than the psalmists have. We know Jesus, that God took on human form, became a servant, humbled himself into the depths of the human experience and died, Philippians says, even to the point of death on a cross. And if he was willing to death, why would he not be willing to stoop to whatever depth you are in right now? If God was willing to forgive you in the ways that you've intentionally wronged him, why would he not care for you now? God is not looking to abandon you. We already know his character. And we can be certain that God's presence is with us because we already know the links that God has been willing to go to in order to be present with us. We can have confidence that God is standing with us in the depths because we have confidence in our standing with God. We've been redeemed. The psalmist says there's plentiful redemption. If God saved you and redeemed you, he redeemed you for a purpose. Why would he turn his back on you now? If God forgave you at your lowest point, the depths of the depths. Why would he not be present in the depths with you now? Our hope does not come from figuring out the puzzle pieces or finding the right person to blame. Our hope in times of suffering comes because we know God and his character. These merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is why forgiveness is so important to us as Christians. It's not just so you feel better about yourself. or not just so that you're merely in the right with God, but because it tells us of the glorious character of God. And this God who forgives is not going to be a God who abandons. 
And this God who redeems is not a God who will write you off or leave you in your time of need. We lose that. This would be like for us um, in a marriage. And let's say in a marriage, a husband was unfaithful to his wife. But because she was exceedingly kind and gracious and loved him, she forgave him for that unfaithfulness. Why in the world would that husband think that his wife was going to abandon him because he forgot to take out the trash? Or why would that husband think his wife was going to leave him because he got a cancer diagnosis? Or why would that husband think his wife was going to leave him because he lost his job? Do you see the logic of the argument now? If God has already forgiven you and brought you into his family, why would he leave you now? Why would we not hope? Why would we not have certainty that God is present with his people? Then the psalmist says that this causes us to fear the Lord. Do you see that phrase? It's easy to get trapped up on that phrase because we typically use the word fear to be associated with things that we are deathly afraid of. Things that we want to run from, that we tremble at the sight of. But here, as in other Psalms, this phrase is used to indicate trust. In Psalm 40, verse 3, it says, Many will fear and will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The idea here is that you've experienced God's grace in such a way that you no longer fear or value what other people think or say about you as much as you value God's word about you. That you and I would embrace or become people that value what God has to say so much that we act on it and in it. That we consider him in all things, that God is never out of the equation for us. Ray Ortland defines the fear of the Lord as a total openness of heart. That when we've experienced God's grace and mercy, we are open in our heart, valuing and trusting in God and leaving to him meanings and conclusions about our suffering. That we know we can trust him because he's been good to us at the depths before. And so we trust him now. And we do that by watching and waiting watching and waiting for the Lord who pursues his people, who has been a rescuer to us, who is merciful, who forgives, who is compassionate and kind. We trust him knowing that while we might not ever fully understand why, we do know that he is good. So what does this mean for us today? A couple quick things. Number one. You can be honest. I pray you know that you can be honest here. You can be honest in prayer before God, and you can be honest in our community of faith. That our MCs should be full of honesty. I'm at the bottom. I hate this. My job is sucking the life out of me. We're not playing games. Look, maybe you didn't realize this about the gospel. 
you've already admitted when you came to Jesus that you were in the depths. No reason to start hiding that now. We can be honest. Secondly, we can walk in hope. We should have great confidence that God will not abandon us. He will not leave us or forsake us. He has been faithful to us. And while it may be confusing and difficult and painful, while you might feel alone and full of fear, you can be confident in hope that God is going to show up as sure as the sun is coming up tomorrow morning. And in that confidence, we don't have to know everything. We don't have to have all the right answers. We don't have to have perfect explanations. Our puzzle does not have to be solved. We just have hope that the God who forgives does not forget. That the God who's already been compassionate to us is going to continue to be compassionate to us. That the God who has heard our pleas of mercy will continue to hear our pleas of mercy. And then finally, this is important because there's three of us in the room, three different categories of us. Some of us just came out of a time of suffering. It's hard. Some of us are in the middle of it right now. It's confusing. For some of us, it's coming. The Bible never teaches that we're not going to experience it. I know you guys got like some charlatan preachers that you like to watch on television that teach the opposite, right? But that's not the biblical position here. The depths are coming. We're all going to experience loss. We're all going to experience sickness. We're all going to walk through difficulty. What we remember in those times is that God is good. That we can trust his character. That he has been good to us in the past. This is how we are shaped by the gospel. Do you see that? When we remember this is who God is. This is how he has loved me. And he's not going to abandon me now. That's not easy. I'm not glossing over this. That doesn't necessarily mean that your suffering evaporates. It does mean, though, that you can have confidence in the character of God, that he is both, both present and concerned. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us that you have loved us in the middle of the depths, that you pursued us to the depths. And in our current situation, Father, whether it is our sin that has gotten us there or it is just happenstance and life, that we can have confidence today that you are still present, that you love us, that you have set your heart towards us, that you will continually extend mercy, that there is plentiful redemption, more than enough. And that is where our hope lies this morning.
So my friends here, Father, this morning who are going through difficult times suffering, Father, all the uncertainty that it creates, anxiety, fear, feelings of being wronged, a need to blame, temptation to hide. God, I just pray that you would give them something better today. A confident hope that they can wait and watch for the morning. A confident hope in your character and your goodness. Father, uh, today, if there are any among us who just don't know Jesus, this is confusing to them. How we could have hope and suffering makes zero sense. And that's because right now this person just doesn't know Christ. Is separated from you, has not experienced your grace or your mercy. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Show them the depth of their sin and show them today how your mercy is deeper still. That you love them that Jesus died for them, and there is hope for them here and now and in the future. God, could you do that work by your spirit? And Father, for those of us who've experienced suffering but have seen you, felt you just come through, walk with us through it, could we just enjoy, look back at that time and go, God, you're so good to us. We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen.